Um, if you're someone who's going to pass out communion, uh, we're going to pass this out right now. And so if you would come and grab these trays and get them going around the room. We invite anyone who's been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ to take communion. You don't have to be a member here at LCF if you're, if you're visiting and uh, you've been saved by God's grace. We invite you to take a little two stack of cups. We're going to get to those later in the service. So just set them down where you're not going to kick them over. If you do end up accidentally knocking them over throughout the service, um, there'll be trays up here. You could just come get some new ones. Uh, I'm kidding. Actually, they're going to set these trays over here by the exit sign. There's a little hallway and a table. Uh, if, you, if you knock yours over or you forgot to grab them and you want to go over there and grab a little stack of cups, you can do that. We'll get to those here in a moment. Uh, this morning, we're going to work with the rest of Genesis chapter 25. We covered a lot of ground last week. Um, this week, we're doing less. It's just Genesis 25, verse 19 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 34. And before we read the whole thing, this is how it starts. Genesis 25, 19. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. And then what you have from there is a statement from the Lord and a, the description or the narration of a scene in the life of Isaac's sons. So these are the family records of Isaac. Hey, here's the story of Isaac's life. And it jumps right to his children. In fact, his adult children. What's going on there? I think what's happening is that we're supposed to see that God made promises to Abraham that are going to come to fruition through Isaac and then Jacob. And where he starts the story of Isaac's life is with the point to which we're headed. It's similar to movies that begin with like the last scene or books that begin with the final scene, then loop themselves back in time and work you all the way toward it. The movie Saving Private Ryan does this. It starts in a cemetery with a family walking through to one specific uh, headstone. And then once they arrive there, it flashes back to World War II. You work your way all the way back up until you end the movie back there and you discover why it is that they're at that particular spot. Uh, Forrest Gump also does this. It's not just a Tom Hanks thing, but <laughs> Forrest Gump also does this. The movie begins with Forrest Gump seated on a bus bench in a park and a woman sits down next to him and he shoves a box of chocolates in her face and she, he says, do you want one? My, my mom always said life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. I could eat a hundred of these. And then he says, sort of out of nowhere, I like your shoes. And she says, well, my feet actually kind of hurt. And he says, my mama used to say that you could tell a lot of, about a person by their shoes. And then he says, I remember my first pair of shoes. And he goes all the way back and he starts to tell the story of his life and you keep bouncing back to this park bench. And every time you bounce back to the park bench or the bus bench, he talks a little bit and then you jump forward in his life, presumably to a new pair of shoes. And he tells you about that section of his life until you end at the very end back there at the bus bench. The movie, The Prestige, starts with a very abstract shot of a field full of top hats. And then it goes in a couple of minutes, very rapid fire to a clip of a man standing on a stage in front of like a sold out theater. Then there's a guy taking a bird out of a cage. Then there's a man dropping into a tank of water that locks and presumably he drowns there. And you're thinking to yourself, 
which one of these people am I supposed to like follow or trust or who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, what's going on? Well, then the movie goes back and helps you understand that. I think what's happening here is that the author of Genesis says, God's made these promises to Abraham. Now we're looking at Isaac, but right from the start of looking at Isaac, I want you to understand that we're actually looking at Jacob, one of Isaac's sons. So if you've got Genesis 25 open there in front of you, we'll continue on from verse 19 and finish the chapter. It says this, these are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife, Rebecca, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Pedam Aram and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife Rebecca conceived, but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed inside. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted, He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. What I want to do this morning is uh, sort of parse our way through one big theological truth that this narrative helps to illustrate and then end with one very practical reminder. Here's where we're going to land on the theological truth side. This passage illustrates for us that divine sovereignty and human agency move in perfect harmony. Divine sovereignty and human agency move in perfect harmony. Let's just work our way through the passage. The first thing we see is divine sovereignty. God freely and certainly chooses something. The passage tells us that like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah cannot conceive. That's verse 21. But notice that they don't jump to their own method for solving the problem. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. Sarah can't conceive. We'll find a way to have a child somewhere else. That involves Hagar. Isaac and Rebekah instead do something different. Isaac goes to the Lord in prayer. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Isaac knows the promises that were made to his father. Isaac knows that they're going to continue to come through fruition from him or through him. And so he turns to the Lord to pray toward their fulfillment. And we're told in an intriguing statement, the Lord was receptive to his prayer. And his wife, Rebekah, conceived. If you're familiar with the biblical story, uh, particularly with the patriarchs here in the early portion of Genesis, 
We jump into this passage of scripture, you see the heading, Esau sells his birthright, and you say to yourself really quickly in your head, even as you're reading it, well, of course, Jacob is the one who wrestles with God. He's the one who gets renamed Israel. That's why the people of God are called the Israelites. So obviously, it's Jacob, not Esau. One of the difficulties when we read scripture, particularly when we're familiar with it, is that it's hard for us to inhabit the story in the way that the people in it experienced it. You know who doesn't know that Jacob's gonna wrestle with God and be renamed Israel? Rebecca and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. They have no idea. They are experiencing time in a linear fashion. We sort of read this and we, we jump to the end. And so one of the challenges when we come to familiar portions of scripture is to sort of stop ourselves from doing that and try to actually inhabit what's happening here as though we're the ones who are going through it or experiencing it. And so we read something like, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. As if what happened is Isaac stopped, prayed, and the Lord shouted from heaven, I'm receptive! And then instantly, Rebecca conceived and had a child. It took 20 years. 20 years for that to happen. 20 years of praying probably every month. Just like mom and dad, my wife can't conceive. But nations are supposed to come. From grandpa, Abraham. That's got to happen through me. Lord, why are we not able to have a child? All the time, constantly, for 20 years. And then Rebecca conceives. We're told in verse 22 that the children struggled inside of her. If you've got an ESV or a CSB, which is CSB, what we use here on Sunday mornings, It says struggled. I think if you've got a King James or a New Living Translation, it also says something like they struggled with each other. If you've got an NIV, it says that the babies jostled each other, which is another accurate way to translate that word. It would be fair to render it that the children smashed against one another. Okay, what is happening in Rebecca's womb? Not 100% sure. But she knows enough to know that it's not normal. And so what does she do? She inquires of the Lord. And the Lord responds. And what you have recorded there in verse 23 is what in biblical parlance we would say is an oracle from the Lord. And he says, two nations are in your womb. To the reader of Genesis, that ought to signify something significant. Nations are going to come from Abraham passed down to Isaac. Now we're working through Isaac. Nations, like that's the fulfillment of promise. Nations of people finally arriving through the line of Abraham. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. Okay, so something's gonna, these two nations are gonna split in some way, shape, or form. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. That goes against the expected order of things in this culture. Older siblings, particularly oldest siblings, do not serve younger siblings in this culture. So the oracle from the Lord foreshadows the lives of Jacob and Esau. They are going to struggle with each other more than once. Started in the womb, and the Lord says, two nations are there. 
They're gonna be separated and the older will serve the younger. It's likely that the separation is gonna be because of that, that when the expected cultural order of things gets usurped in these kids' lives, it's gonna create tension or conflict that's gonna lead them to separate. And so then the children are born, verse 24. Her time came to give birth and just like the Lord said, twins were in her womb. The first one came out red looking, covered with hair like a fur coat. Just pause there. Imagine being Esau. Like, that's my introduction to all of human history. That I was born furry like I was wearing a coat. Like, we couldn't have gone with anything else about me except for that. The second comes out holding on to his heel. That's Jacob. And so they're named accordingly. Esau sounds like the Hebrew word for hairy, Sahar, Esau. Jacob sounds like the Hebrew word for heel. Akev, his name is Yaakov. Then we're told that from the time Isaac prayed about Rebekah's barrenness to the time that she gives birth was 20 years. He was 40 when they got married. He is 60 by the time the children are born. And so with that in mind, when you get down to verse 26, you're just trying to inhabit this the way they're experiencing it. What do Rebekah and Isaac know? For whatever reason, God and his sovereignty has chosen that the second born son will rule over the first one in some way, shape, or form. Like, that's the, that's the full scope of what they're aware of. Two nations here, they're going to be separated, and the older is somehow going to serve the younger. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, offers a bit of commentary on this that's helpful to understand what's happening. Paul says, Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not yet been born or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose and election might stand not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. This sermon this morning is not an attempt to do a deep dive on the doctrine of election. Mostly because I don't think that's what Genesis is trying to display. Genesis is simply making the point that the promises to Abraham are going to be fulfilled through Isaac, but not in Isaac, because we're supposed to look at Isaac's son, Jacob. Here's here's where we're headed. You're looking through Jacob, not through Esau. Why? Well, because that's what God chose. God chose Abraham out of Ur. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. And so you get to verse 26, and divine sovereignty chooses Jacob. That's what you have. Then you start reading in verse 27. Because the second thing you see is human agency. Jacob and Esau making free choices. You get a brief picture of their futures. Esau is a hunter and an outdoorsman. He's Isaac's favorite, verse 28, because Isaac has a taste for wild game. Then you've got Jacob, who's a quiet man who stays at home or inside, and Rebecca loves Jacob more. And then there's a situation over stew. Jacob is home cooking one day when Esau comes in tired and hungry. He asks Jacob to give him some of the stew that he's cooking, to which Jacob replies, sure, give me your birthright. Esau says, I'm dying, man. I'm so hungry, I'm going to starve to death. What's a birthright good for? Hey, you can have it. To which Jacob says, swear to me. 
I need proof that when dad dies and we say the double portion is mine, that you're not gonna try to weasel your way out of this. To which Jacob replies, or Esau replies, okay. And we're told that he swears to him that that's the case. Jacob gives him some lentil stew. And then you get this little like staccato statement at the end. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. And then Genesis gives you the only commentary on the whole event. So Esau despised his birthright. Let me flip that into like modern sort of language. And there's nothing in here that tells us how old Jacob and Esau are at this point in their life. Presumably they're young adults, um, teenagers maybe, but it's way more fun to do the modern language with like children. So you've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. Your seven-year-old is outdoorsy. Your five-year-old is indoorsy. One day the seven-year-old comes home from being outside, smells like outside, and he sees that his little brother is there and he's got two little squeezy pouches. He's just getting ready to enjoy a snack. The seven-year-old says, oh, I'm so starving. I think I'm gonna die. Can I have your squeezies? To which the five-year-old says, sure. Uh, I would like all of your screen time minutes for the rest of your life, please. (laughs) And the older says, what do I care about screen time right now? I'm literally about to die. Sure, you can have it. Younger one says, swear it to me. Because later today, when my screen time is over, and I say, ah, I have two times the screen time. And mom says, I don't believe you. I want verification that I'm going to get your minutes. And the older says, okay, I swear. And the younger gives over both of his squeezy pouches and chuckles because he just made out like a bandit. Two little squeezy pouches for a lifetime of screen time. And you think to yourself, you're being a little trite about that, Tim. Like screen time compared to a birthright? To which I say, what's at stake for Esau? Like some extra cattle? A little more land? Some more money? I mean, like dig through a bit of the cultural context here. The oldest son in a family was privileged to a double portion of the inheritance. So you got two sons here. You take everything that dad has, chop it into three parts. Two pieces go to the oldest child. One piece goes to the youngest child. That would be the normal expected run of things. And when Esau says, sure, you can have it. Jacob says, swear to me. Like apparently the verbal agreement needed more formal impact. And so did they sign a document? Did they do the thigh thing that we read about with Abraham last weekend? Like what exactly happened? We're not sure. But whatever happened, Jacob wanted to be certain that he could bind Esau to what was being said. I want you locked into this so that when dad dies, I get what should have been yours. Okay, so some things to notice. Esau's under no compulsion here. No one coerces him into this. He makes this choice of his own free will. The text does not say that God made him do anything. The text does not say that mom and dad are involved. The same is true for Jacob. He's under no compulsion. He is not coerced in any way into this scheme. The text does not say that God made him do it. The text does not say that mom and dad are involved in any way, shape, or form. You've got two people making free choices to act according to their desires. Esau wants food. Jacob wants what's Esau's. And they both get exactly what they desired. Esau gets fed. 
Jacob gets the birthright. And what's the commentary? So Esau despised his birthright. The commentary is not, so God got his way. The commentary is that Esau thought so very little of the blessings that could come from Isaac. I mean, not only was he in line for the double portion, but he logically would have been in line for the benefit of all the promises that had been made to Grandpa Abraham, passed on to Father Isaac, down now to the oldest son, Esau. Jacob presumably does not despise them. He saw a path to all those benefits and he took it. And no one in the entire account comes out looking great. Mom and dad are apparently playing favorites. Esau is a slave to his momentary fleshly desires. Jacob is a skeeving, conniving little weasel to which every firstborn in the room says, exactly, that's what younger siblings are. I'm a youngest, so I can say that. But you get down to the end of verse 34 and what you've got is that human agency chooses Jacob. They both got exactly what they chose. No one forced them or coerced them. They made their own choices. And now the older is in line to be subservient to the younger. So you take the whole of that and you sort of put it together and divine, agent, or divine sovereignty and human agency move in perfect harmony. And within the context of the Genesis story up to this point, why put that in this spot? These are the family records of Isaac. Here's a story about Jacob and Esau. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah tried to bring those promises to pass by their own means, but God had not chosen Ishmael. He had chosen Isaac. And as the story shifts toward the line of Isaac, Genesis wants you to see exactly where this is headed. It's not Esau. It's Jacob. So the first thing Genesis does is show you a statement from God. I have chosen the older will serve the younger. And then you get a scene of their human agency. Esau and Jacob have chosen that the older will indeed serve the younger. The two work in perfect harmony, but the result is clear. Jacob is the one through whom God is going to continue to work to bring his promises to pass. All the specific promises made to Abraham, but also the promise of one who will come to crush the head of the serpent. That's the big arc of where Genesis has been moving. Abraham, no, nah, it's not Abraham. Isaac, nope, it's not Isaac. And now, right from the start of the story of Isaac, Genesis is telling you it's not Esau. Maybe it's Jacob. Maybe he's the one who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. Or, at the very least, he's the one through whom the serpent crusher will come. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, thousands of years, a child is born. Jesus, through that line. And what does Isaiah say of Jesus? It was the will of the Father to crush him. And yet, Herod, Pilate, the religious leaders, the mob, they were under no compulsion, no coercion to put Jesus on that cross. In fact, Acts chapter four, Jesus has died, been placed in the tomb, resurrected. He's ascended. The early followers of Jesus are there in Jerusalem and one of them gives a sermon and says, let it be known to you all. He's just speaking to this crowd, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
You chose it. Well, it was the will of the Father to crush him. But scripture says, they decided to. No one forced them. God's sovereign choice, humanity's free agency, move in perfect harmony such that the promise of God comes to pass. Jesus Christ, sinless, dies a sinner's death on the cross, placed in a tomb, resurrects on the third day, stomps on the head of the serpent on his way out of the tomb, spends 40 days there with his disciples, ascends up into heaven, is now seated at the right hand of God. And it's a perfect mixture of the will of the Father to crush him and like the early follower of Jesus says, your choice to crucify him, Jerusalem. And the result of that perfect harmony is the glory of your salvation, brother or sister in Christ. If you want to bend down and pick up your little cups. It's impossible to have a conversation on this specific topic without a significant number of people wanting to take one more step and say, well, what about my salvation? God's choice or mine? Divine sovereignty or human agency? To which I would look back at you and say, I don't think God is bound to the false binary that your finite mind creates. Which was it? Did God divinely choose all of those who would be part of the family of God? I think scripture absolutely says that he does. And yet, was there a moment for you, brother or sister in Christ, where you of your own free human agency chose to receive God's grace that saved you by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, there was. To which you say, okay, cop out. Which one came first? To which I say, God is not bound by time. I think they both happened at the exact same time, buried deep in eternity past, and you need not worry about which one came first. Because it is to the glory of God that by his will, the son was crushed on the cross. It was the will of the father to crush him. Why? so that in his resurrection and triumph over death, he might put an end to the serpent. And it was to the glory of God that a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, then as human history played out, are drawn into his family and would one day spend eternity worshiping with him around the throne. And I don't think God has to be bound by the binary that our mind wants to create that says, well, did I choose it or did God choose it? I would look back and say, yep. And when we come and we take communion, we hold in our hands reminders. It was the will of the Father to crush the Son. And yet Herod and Pilate and the Pharisees and the crowd that day, they chose to put him on the cross. And divine sovereignty and human agency worked in perfect harmony such that the son died the death that I deserve to die. And there is immense humility created in that. And the temptation is to think, well, if God just divinely chooses, then like, what does it matter? I guess I'm just a robot. Or to swing the other way and say, well, faith is actually kind of like a work that I mustered up by myself. And so 
I'm actually the one to credit for my salvation. But the fullness of scripture reminds you that no, neither one of those extremes can possibly be true because divine sovereignty and human agency move in perfect harmony such that the promises and the plans of God are fulfilled. And so we come to take communion and we hold in our hands the representative symbols of the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us because the Father chose it and human agency made it happen. And it ought to just breed immense humility in us of a God whose ways are higher than our ways, of a God whose grace is greater than our sin, a reminder of Jesus who humbly died a death he didn't deserve to die, triumphed out of the grave, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning right now, and one day he's gonna rise on my behalf. Why? Not because I deserve it, but because of his grace. And so brother or sister in Christ, this represents the body of Christ given for you. Eat in remembrance of him. And this represents the blood of Christ poured out on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sin. Drink in remembrance of him. If you attend LCF regularly, you look down at your watch and you say, man, he's done early. To which I say, come on, no, I'm not. (laughs) Because it leaves a massive question for us. How do you navigate your human agency well? Like, do I just sin with impunity because God's gonna get his way anyway? Or, like, could my actions somehow derail the plans of God? Like, how do we, what do we do with that? How do we navigate the space of that as we live? And I think the text highlights one very practical reminder for us. The challenge is to walk in righteousness and wisdom while you navigate your own human agency in the mystery of God's sovereignty. The question becomes one of how do we do that well? And the difficulty in that, which I think Genesis 25 illustrates for us, is that sin makes us stupid. If you attend LCF, you say, he's usually a little more nuanced than that. So here's the more nuanced version. Sin makes you senseless. I mean, just look at Genesis 25. Sin makes us irreverent toward the things of God. Look, we don't know precisely what Jacob and Esau knew about God's covenant promises to Abraham that had been passed on to their father Isaac, but I think it's safe to say they knew something. It appears that Esau just doesn't think very highly of them. Such is the reality of sin. It makes us irreverent toward the things of God. And that is stupid, senseless. And yet the gospel reframes this for us because when by God's grace you're saved through faith in Jesus Christ, the things of God you realize are the truest and deepest and most important and most beautiful and most wonderful realities in all of the world. And so what happens inside your heart is that things start to shift a little bit. And over time, the process of sanctification is the continuing shifting of that so that you hold in very high regard the things of God. These are the most important things who he is, what he's done for us in the son, 
his word, his commands, his promises, his plans, what scripture says is going to happen. And those take higher and higher and higher importance and value in your life. Sin makes us irrespective toward image bearers of God. This is the Jacob side of the equation. It appears that he has high regard for the covenant promises of God and very little regard for his brother. Sin makes him irrespective of an image bearer. It does not seem to face Jacob one bit that he lies and swindles his brother. And it is very true that within the people of God, we can have a very high regard for the things of God, and yet sin can lead us to a place of having very little regard for people made in God's image. You do not have to look very far throughout church history or modern church events to see people or whole groups of followers of Jesus who appear to have a very high regard for the things of God and yet very little regard for people made in God's image. And one of the great travesties in that is that oftentimes followers of Jesus, to their own shame, will claim that the things of God somehow excuse their low regard for people made in God's image. But you cannot reflect on the gospel for one second and lead yourself to a place where that's actually true. I mean, how high of a regard does God have for people made in his image? So high a regard that the son took on flesh and came into the world and died a death that human sinners deserve to die. Why? So that he could gather to the Lord a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who would live with him for all of eternity in perfect, unbroken fellowship. That's how high of a regard God has for people made in his image. Sin makes us irresponsible with the gifts of God. Esau trades the covenant promises of God for a bowl of soup. And we look in from the outside and we say, in what world would someone do that? That is the worst trade in all of human history. And though the gifts are different, we do this all the time. We trade something good that God has given us for something trite that sin offers We're willing to swap the gift of healthy, wonderful relationships for the quick rush of gossip, for the seeming gratification of sharp words uttered in the wrong tone at the wrong time. We'll trade the gift of a beautiful marriage for the fleeting pleasure of pornography or an affair. As young people, we're often susceptible to trading the gift of a clean conscience before the Lord for the friendship of like six middle school kids. We'll trade the gift of wondrously created bodies for the passing high of a substance. Or maybe even more relatable than that, we'll trade the wonderful gift of these beautifully created bodies for the fullness of that we think comes through gluttony. How many times have you sat at a table completely stuffed and looked down at a few more pieces and thought to yourself, I can get those in? Only to spend like the rest of the night or the next day sick to your stomach. We'll trade the gift of a good reputation for the fleeting pleasure of a senseless lie or a sharp social media comment. But the gospel reframes this for us. 
because we learn to see the gifts of God as evidence of his grace to us. We start to get overwhelmed by the reality of just how good and kind God has been to us. And why would I want to in any way sort of trample or walk on top of or trade away the goodness of God's grace to me for something fleeting that sin offered that it can't ever actually provide? Sin makes us irrational toward our own good. Look, no one sits down in a moment of sin and tries to think rationally. That's because sin by its very nature makes us irrational. It makes us short-sighted. Sin is constantly trying to make us willingly choose our own destruction over our own good. And then the true tyranny of sin is that after choosing our own destruction over our own good, it tries to convince us, you made a good choice. You should make that one again and again and again. It's good to gratify that desire in that way. Well, why else would God give you that desire if he doesn't want you to fulfill it? It's for the best that you responded like that, that you blew up like that. Everyone should get to speak their mind. You are just being bold for the truth. It's fine to feel that way or think this way. Everyone feels and thinks these things. And all the while we're drinking a poison that wants us to think it's water. But the gospel reframes this for us because we come to understand that our greatest good is found in Jesus. It's found in what he's done for us. It's found in the promises he's secured for us. It's found in what he offers us daily. And so here is like the the beauty of the gospel in sort of trying to navigate your agency. It is not that, well, God divinely chooses. He is sovereign over all things. And so it doesn't matter what you do. You just do whatever you want and his promises are gonna come to pass. That is not what the gospel says to us. But the gospel also does not say you get saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and then you need to do everything that you possibly can so that you don't screw up what God has for you. Instead, the gospel says, That divine sovereignty and human agency work in perfect harmony. So the plans of God, the purposes of God, they are rock solid. He has chosen and nothing is going to thwart them. But your agency matters. And so one of the great gifts of the gospel is that when you receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, you get the Holy Spirit who says, let me teach you how to navigate your agency with righteousness and wisdom. You can depend on me, you can lean on me, you can look to me, you can humble yourself before me, you can listen to me, and you are not left alone to sort out how to live righteously and with wisdom. God in the gospel has provided to you the means by which you're empowered to do so. That's the beauty of the gospel. We sort of think of the Holy Spirit in the midst of our sin as though what Esau really needed was that when Jacob said, swear to me, and Esau said, I swear to you, that the Holy Spirit would have run through the room at that moment as Jacob held out the bowl and slapped it out of his hand and said, Esau, you ding-dong, don't eat that. What the Holy Spirit does is it reworks your affections. We want the Holy Spirit to sweep in and stop our action. What we need is for the Holy Spirit to completely rewire the things that we want so that we learn how to hold the things of God in high regard 
so that we become people who are very respectful toward image bearers, so that we become people who are responsible stewards of the gifts that God has given to us, so that we become people who understand that our good is found according to God's word and that we flourish in obedience to him. That's what the Holy Spirit comes in to do. As soon as you're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you get that gift. Present to rewire what's inside of you so that you're able to navigate your agency with God-glorifying, Christ-like righteousness and wisdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then uh, we'll close in worship. If you're able, would you stand while we pray? God, we thank you for uh, the gift of Jesus. God, that you would see fit to enter into the mess of human sin and brokenness in order to save a people for yourself. God, we praise you for that. God, I pray that we as a church, that we as individuals uh, would be people who are daily committed to submitting themselves to the Holy Spirit that his power, your power at work inside of us would lead us toward lives of increasing righteousness and wisdom that's glorifying to you. God, that we would navigate our agency well in this world. God, would you fill your people with your spirit toward that end? Would you be glorified in us as we seek to live in a way that is righteous, and filled with the fruit of the Spirit. God, we praise you that you have plans and promises that nothing can thwart, that you are sovereign over all things, that we can trust in that reality. God, we submit ourselves to you and to the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us on behalf of your plans and promises. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.